uh, of Scripture this morning. It comes to us from Luke chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. Hear now these words. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know that this is so? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Friends, we are now... Uh, on the other side of Thanksgiving, a time when we get together with family, we eat a lot. Uh, I had stuffing with bacon in it this Thanksgiving, and it was, gr- it was good. <laughs> uh, but we ate a lot, and I hope you did too. And, and also, I'm always reminded around this time of year that whenever you get together with family members, you tell a lot of stories, many stories that we've heard before, <laughs> probably our whole lives. And depending on how big your family is, I'm always reminded that there are many different kinds of storytellers in families. In my family growing up, you always had a few different kinds of storytellers. You had the the one who always started in the middle of a story. You You didn't even know what happened before. The middler would just start, and you're like, wait, I missed a lot of stuff. There was always in my family somebody that I'd call the historian, the person who gives you the history of everything in the world up to, and then the story. And by the time you get to the story, your history, there's the name dropper who makes sure that you know every single name that was encountered in that story. And then there was always kind of the random narrator who, who begins a story in one place, and then by the time you're done, you wonder, how did we, how did we get from there to there? <laughs> and interestingly enough, the gospel writers follow that sequence a little bit. Mark seems to be a little bit of the middler. He begins his gospel right in the middle of the action. John decides to begin his gospel at the very beginning of everything. And Matthew, is a little bit of a name dropper, begins with a list of ancestry, naming every single person you need to know. But Luke, to me, has always felt a little bit like the random narrator at first. Because in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, Luke sets up his whole two-volume set, remember he wrote Luke and Acts, by addressing a man named Theophilus, and this is what he says, so many people have tried to compile a story of all the things that took place among us using eyewitness accounts. I have investigated all the reports closely, starting at the beginning. Here it is, so that you can have some feeling of reliability about what you were taught. And where does Luke begin his thorough and intensely researched two-volume set? He begins with a story that nobody else tells about Jesus' aunt and uncle 
and the coming of his cousin John, which honestly at first glance feels a little bit random. I mean, the story of the miracle of the birth of Jesus begins with the story of the birth of another baby. And by the end of Luke 2, there are now two babies. And if I were reading Luke for the first time, by the end of that chapter, I'd say that Luke is a little baby crazy. It's possible to me, as I was reading through this week, that Luke is simply making a comment about babies in general. Perhaps he's trying to say that every birth is a miracle. Every child is a gift. Yes, Jesus will be the greatest gift we've ever received. But at the beginning of the gospel, it seems that Luke wants us to know that there's more than one birth that's special. The birth of every child is special. And that seems to be the story of noon and first UMC right now. There's more than one on the way. There are somewhere between 12 and 13 babies on the way in this church right now. I don't know if you knew that. And more have been born in the last few months. And there are so many families in this church who can agree right now that this thing is, is a miracle for everybody. And Luke highlights that a little bit. And this is how he begins his narrative. During the reign of Herod, there was a certain priest from the regiment of Abijah His name was Zechariah, and he was married to Elizabeth. And these were good folks. They obeyed the commandments. They were rule followers. Sounds like a couple of firstborns. Uh, They were good Jewish people. They kept the Sabbath. They attended the celebrations and festivals. They paid their tithe to the temple. They did everything right. And yet, they were childless. And they were beyond childbearing years. And so the not-so-subtle implication here is that they had been trying for a long time, and they'd made offering after offering to God, expecting God to bless them with a child, but instead there was simply silence. This is similar to the Genesis story of Sarah and Abraham, the father of the three religions. Abraham and Sarah weren't certain they would have any children, and they'd wanted them for so long, but whenever they prayed, the response they got was always, Silence. I don't know if you've ever been there with Zechariah and Elizabeth, with Abraham and Sarah, in a place where you've had this vision for your life, and for some reason it didn't turn out the way you thought. You tried to do everything right, and still the outcome you received is one of pain and sadness. You pleaded with God for a change, and it didn't come, and you were left with the silence of God. And that kind of silence is deafening. Mother Teresa of Calcutta was known far and wide as someone who showed compassion and care for the sick and the dying. And when letters and journal entries were found after her death, the world understood that she did so much of this in the silence of God. In his biography of Mother Teresa, David Scott writes, for more than 50 years following her initial visions and conversations from God, Mother Teresa was wrapped in dark, pitiless silence. She only once more heard the voice of God, and she believed the doors of heaven had been closed and bolted against her. Of course, we always saw her smiling, especially when she was around children. She beamed with delight, but in private, she went in a deep period of silence. She longed for the voice of God, but she did not hear it. Adair and I watched a new movie last week called You Hurt My Feelings. And it stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who plays a writer named Beth. And she published a somewhat successful memoir in the past, but she's having trouble getting her second manuscript off the ground. And periodically, she'll ask her husband, Don, what he thinks, and he simply responds, the book's great, 
You're a great writer. We just need to find a new agent. That's probably the problem. A new company. Surely they'll take it. But the next day, she overhears her husband talking to a friend, and he says to his buddy, the book's terrible. Nobody will take it. She's just not that good of a writer. And for days after, Beth feels such hurt and pain, she can't speak to her husband. She can only be silent because she trusted him. And that trust feels lost now. And so she gives her husband the silent treatment, which I'm sure many of us in here know what that's like. We can't get a single response from her, and for a period they exist in that painful silence. Of course, it is in that silence that, that the real change begins to take place. The central conflict of the entire story hinges on that moment of silence. And I think the same can be said for God. Because to me, in Scripture, any time there is a period of silence, something is about to happen. Every time there's a significant moment of silence where it feels like God is just not answering or, or God is even there, God is about to do something. And the deeper the silence, often the greater the something. The silence with Abraham and Sarah ends in their being the mother and father of Israel. The silence of Joseph in prison ends in his being placed second in command of Egypt. The silence of 400 years in slavery ends in freedom through the Red Sea and beyond. And the silence of the grave on Holy Saturday ends in resurrection and new life on Easter Sunday. Every time there is a period of silence, the world is about to turn. God is about to do something. If there's any place in your life that it feels like God is being silent, I invite you to write it down. Save it for later, remember it, because it has been my experience that when there is long silence, God is about to do something. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, they've asked repeatedly for a child, for a family, and God has been silent, and it is in the context of this silence, after years and years of not hearing from God, that Zechariah gets a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. In the first century, there were around 20,000 priests, and each priest served one week in the temple twice a year. Zechariah was performing his priestly duties when it happened that he was chosen by lot to burn incense in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of God where the presence of God was said to dwell. This meant a once-in-a-lifetime trip into this sacred space. Not every priest was afforded this opportunity for this special service, and a priest could only be selected once in his entire life. So Zechariah gets a shot to do this once-in-a-lifetime thing, and he's not throwing away his shot. And with the weight of this childlessness, with the weight of the silence of God, Zechariah enters the Holy of Holies. And in a ritual that should have taken a matter of moments, Zechariah is all of a sudden aware of another presence in the room. And just like that, the silence that Zechariah and Elizabeth have been in the middle of for so long, the silence of God is over. And the first words to break the silence are, do not be afraid. Those are common words spoken when God sends a messenger, this incarnation of God's will in the world. Kathleen Norris says, incarnation is the place where hope contends with fear. And the voice says, do not be afraid. And then Zechariah hears the words he's been waiting to hear for so long. Your prayer has been heard. Those are powerful words. Your prayer has been heard. Those would be powerful words today if only simply to hear that you've been heard. My wife is a therapist, a mental health counselor, and her industry is growing. Therapy in general is seeing an uptick. Why? Because people need somebody to listen, to hear them. And in our world today, there aren't enough people in our lives to actually hear us, it seems. We're connected 
to more people than we've ever been, and yet we've become worse at listening. Look at our politics, our news. Most of the time we see people yelling at one another, never actually being silent and hearing each other. And sadly, that same thing has even worked its way occasionally into the church. But I think we're supposed to be different, right? Aren't we supposed to be good listeners? I wonder how many of our problems could be solved if we stopped trying to talk over one another and started trying to listen. Zechariah has been listening out for God for a long time, and after years of silence, he hears the voice, you have been heard. And the voice continues, you're going to have a son. And this miracle, this birth, will fill you with joy. Many will rejoice, and he will be seen as loved by God. He will be filled with the Spirit. He will help many return to God. He will announce the arrival of God. Zechariah has just heard the thing that he and his wife have dreamed of for years and years and years and years. It's about to happen. And what is his reaction? Not a chance. It's impossible. Tell God... He must not know how biology works. It doesn't work like that. We're past the time we can do this. I can't help but wonder why he reacts like this. And I wonder if perhaps Zechariah has felt God's silence for so long that he's filled that silence with louder voices from within. Perhaps he's heard the voices of cynicism and defeat. Perhaps he's heard those same messages from friends and coworkers. It's often true that when God is perceived to be silent, We do a good job of filling the void with other voices, negative, shallow, life-taking voices. And Zechariah has been convinced. And he tells the voice of God when it finally breaks through the silence, it's impossible. And the voice, the, the response that comes from that voice, until this miracle is realized, you now will be silenced. And all of a sudden, Zechariah cannot speak, and I can imagine it is in that moment that he knows, oh, wow. This isn't a trick. This is for real. But he wasn't the only one to know. The incense was burned and the sacrifice was made and out of the Holy of Holies comes Zechariah. It was the privilege of the priest at the evening sacrifice to come to the rail between the two courts after the incense had been burned in order to bless the congregation there. The people would have marveled that Zechariah was so long delayed, but when he came, he could not speak and the people would have known that he had seen something that something was off. They would have known by his silence. And I imagine that Zechariah would have headed home soon after, and gradually over the days ahead, Elizabeth would have known, even in her husband's silence, that hope was growing. And in that silent mystery, she would have known that her world was about to change. Friends, it's no accident to me that we celebrate Advent in the darkest time of the year, a time when we typically celebrate, or we typically experience sadness and darkness and silence. We celebrate in the darkness because we need a voice in the silence to tell us that we've been heard, that our prayer hasn't fallen on deaf ears, and that the world is about to turn. German theologian and preacher Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned during World War II for smuggling Jews out of Germany and seeking to help the resistance do away with Hitler. And he wrote the following to his friend Eberhard from a Tegel prison cell, In November of 1943, life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, does this, that, or the other, things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. 
Indeed, the time of Advent is a time when we sing the words, Come thou long expected, Jesus, because the world has been doing a lot of waiting. Until Jesus, there had been a silence in the world. But aside from the waiting and the silence, the Advent of Jesus is also one of gentle and subtle hope. John Mark McMillan has a Christmas album, and on his track of Silent Night, Holy Night, there's an addition that he has written that goes like this. Invisible, the hope grows in the black where nobody knows. We smile in the mystery in the night where nobody sees. Some of you, I imagine, may be in a period of silence, of wilderness, of mystery, in the dark where nobody knows. You may be in a time where God has seemed quiet for too long, but today I tell you that in that quiet, something is brewing. For it has often been my experience that in those long periods of deep silence, when I felt farthest from God, God is actually preparing to do something rather hopeful. The world is about to turn. Indeed, after the birth of Zechariah's son, John, at the birth of another child in a stable with no room in the inn, God will end the greatest silence there ever was and begin to lead us all home. The hymn writer of People Look East writes this in the second verse, Furrows be glad, though earth is bare, one more seed is planted there. And it'll take time to nourish that seed. Jan Richardson writes in her prayer, How the Light Comes, I cannot tell you how the light comes, but that it does that it will, that it works its way into the deepest dark that enfolds you, though it may seem long ages in coming or arrive in a shape you did not foresee. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Let us pray. God, we confess this morning that at times it feels like you are silent. At times we call out and it feels like you do not answer. Oh God, this morning I pray that you would give us hope to know that in those periods that you are working something for the good of the kingdom, that you are active and that you are preparing to help the world turn and change. Oh God, whatever silence we are in right now or have been in or will be in, continue to share the hope of the world with us and remind us that the world is about to turn. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.